The death toll rises in Ukraine following an onslaught of Russian attacks targeting civilian and energy infrastructure. In Mykolaiv, mostly apartment buildings, civilian areas were affected. However, in Dnipropetrovsk region, as well as in Suma region, we're talking here about critical infrastructure. Plus, will Russia resume nuclear testing now that its parliament has voted to revoke ratification of a global nuclear test ban treaty? What we're seeing is an unraveling of the constraints and the checks and balances that we have in the system for controlling these horrific inhumane weapons. And later in the program, wounded Ukrainians who received medical help abroad are returning home. We'll hear their stories. Today is Thursday, October 19th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Russia continues its daily assaults on Ukraine. I spoke with Anna Chernikova for an update on the latest barrage of missile strikes and the rising death toll as rescuers dig through the rubble of buildings hit in the attacks. Anna, a lot of activity happening in Ukraine in the last 48 hours, including fresh Russian attacks, as well as an update on the death toll from Wednesday's assaults. Yes, so as we discussed on Wednesday, Russian forces attacked the city of Zaporizhia and it was quite a bad attack. As we know at this point, as rescue operation was complete, the death roll increased, of this attack increased to five. And considering new attacks, uh, we have at least at this point confirmation about 10 civilians killed as a result of the latest attacks as well. In terms of the latest attacks, the confirmation from the Ukrainian air defense and air forces comes as Ukraine was attacked over the night and basically the attack started on uh, on Wednesday evening and it was happening over the night mm, and uh, Ukraine was attacked with 17 air targets. This includes five Iskander ballistic missiles, nine drones and also guided missiles, anti-aircraft missiles and cruise missiles. So at this point we know that Donetsk, Mykolaiv, Sumy, Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia regions were the main targets and um, were under the attack again. So we can see that eastern and southern parts of Ukraine are mostly affected. However, is in the north and it looks like the whole territory of Ukraine is actually remain under quite a high risk. What sort of damage can you tell us about this latest shelling? Well, what's interesting in, um, in this shelling that mostly we have reports about infrastructure facilities damaged. This includes energy infrastructure as well as civilian and critical infrastructure. Of course, we do not have a particular details as Ukrainian officials do not get into too much details uh, in terms of uh, for the security reasons and uh, in terms of these attacks. But we understand that in Mykolaiv, mostly apartment buildings, civilian areas were affected. However, in Dnipropetrovsk region, as well as in Suma region, we're talking here about critical infrastructure. We're also hearing, though, that senior Ukrainian military officials say uh, troops are making some headway in counter offensive operations. Yes, the Ukrainian general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine had indirectly confirmed the reports about Ukrainian forces advance in the Kherson region, particularly on the left bank of the Dnipro River, which is uh, at this point still occupied by the Russian forces. And um, this confirmation comes in line with the latest Institute for the Study of War reports as experts assume that Ukrainian Marines have advanced on the occupied bank of the Dnipro River in that area. And as well as also there are certain reports from the Russian war blogger.
developers as well about this, their reaction on this Ukrainian uh, latest uh, moves. So apparently this looks like that Ukrainian forces have certain advance and have certain success. But at this point, we should be very careful in analyzing the prospects and the current situation because it's very shaky and we will be waiting for more confirmation from the Ukrainian authorities. On another topic, Anna, what can you tell us about Ukraine passing a bill to ban the Moscow-linked Orthodox Church? This is quite a news coming in today that Ukraine, Ukrainian parliament has voted in the first reading the bill that basically bans Russian church in Ukraine. There were a lot of discussions within the parliament members uh, about this bill and uh, this bill was initiated by President Zelensky and as we know from all the public speeches by the president and also uh, other Ukrainian officials, Ukraine wants to ban Russian church representation in any kind in Ukraine. So this is definitely the first step. However, a lot of experts and basically Ukrainian parliament um, are still talking about the fact that this bill needs additional work to be done on it and it might be strengthened a lot uh, until the second vote. This procedure is already ongoing and the first step is done as I already said. So Ukraine is looking forward to actually ban any Russian representation of the religion organization in Ukraine, but Ukraine wants to do it in a way that it's not going to be a problem in terms of the international law. So this might be quite a long procedure. Why is this church such a concern? Well, first of all, um, the head of the Russian church in his speeches support President Putin, support uh, what is happening. He's calling this war special military operation. So basically he's repeating uh, all the narratives that Russian propaganda is trying to bring to this case of Russia-Ukraine war and having the representation of this church in Ukraine, especially after full-scale invasion, is quite a weird thing for Ukrainians and this is confirmed by the latest polls. There were polls done and most of Ukrainians support the ban of the church. So uh, it's not even about additional restrictions to be introduced, but actually Ukrainians wanted to be banned. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's over 70% of Ukrainians that voted in its favor. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Thank you so much. Thank you. Russia's foreign minister has visited North Korea and offered thanks for supporting the country's war in Ukraine. Associated Press correspondent Karen Shamis reports this follows last week's U.S. intelligence report of Pyongyang's transfer of munitions to Russia to boost its fighting capabilities. Several North Korean singers serenade Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov at a gala concert in honor of his visit. Russian state television ran footage of crowds greeting Lavrov in the pouring rain in Pyongyang alongside a welcoming party waving pom-poms. His visit comes just days after the US said Pyongyang had transferred munitions to Russia for its ongoing war in Ukraine. Shortly after arriving, Lavrov said he came to discuss putting agreements in place that were made when North Korean leader Kim Jong-un recently visited Russia. I'm Karen Shamas. Meanwhile, during his trip to North Korea, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov proposed regular security talks with North Korea and China. For analysis, I spoke with William Pomeranz, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. How big of a concern is it that Russia is deepening its ties with North Korea and China? I think it is 
concerning. However, for ties with North Korea, Russia, I think, really is strengthening ties because it wants to have access to the Korean weapons. That is really its main concern, dealing with Korea. I don't think they're concerned about global politics and international relations with North Korea. I think it's just simply an important source of weapons now that the Russian Federation wants to make sure remains open for Russia. In terms of China, I think it was very interesting that Putin went to the One Road Summit in China because Putin really hasn't been a part of the One Road Initiative in China. It's again one of the major efforts of China where Russia essentially has been left behind. So yes, Putin and Xi talk about no limits in their relationship. They talk about their both their desire to have a multipolar world, but I don't think that Putin has convinced China not to enforce the sanctions that have been levied by the Europeans and the Americans. As far as North Korea goes, Russia wants to boost its fighting capabilities in Ukraine. The United States has already said that North Korea had transferred munitions and possibly is continuing to do so. How much of an impact could that have for Ukraine's ability to advance its counteroffensive particularly in light of some of the concerns with the U.S. stalling out as far as a new agreement to send more. Putin is far more concerned with the United States' decision to send missiles to Ukraine because he has voiced that several times in China. And he says that it is an example of the U.S. and its willingness to aid Ukraine and that the U.S. and NATO are the real problems for the Russians. And that is why Russia decided to invade Ukraine. So I think that Putin is just trying to distract the rest of the world from the actions that he took in Ukraine and trying to place the blame somewhere else. Do you think that also it's sort of emboldening him, you know, what's happening here in the U.S. as far as Congress? not being able to uh, have a vote on whether to continue to support Ukraine? I think Putin believes that both U.S. and European democracy is weak and is not able to answer the attacks against, against the attacks on Russia and that therefore Putin believes that he can outlast the Europeans and the Americans. And the problem with Congress is only another example of the inefficiency of the West and the United States to engage with a co cohesive international policy. And it looks like Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, and uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban reaffirmed their commitment to bilateral ties amid the international tensions over the war in Ukraine. How does that factor in, given that it's his closest ally among European Union leaders? Putin has always tried to remain in good terms with Orban, and Orban has reciprocated and maintained good relations with Russia. It is strategic for Russia that Hungary is in the EU, and there's always the question of whether Hungary will revoke or not approve sanctions from the EU. But again, this is an attempt by Putin to show that he has international partners. And quite frankly, the reaction to Putin's meeting with Orban, especially amongst the Europeans, have been very swift and they have condemned the meeting with Orban.
Putin has also been calling for ex-Soviet states to expand their influence. Of course, we've been hearing a lot over the course of the past year or so that his ultimate goal is to take back former Soviet states. So would you say that that is still something in his sights? It is something to be concerned about, but Putin's ability to reconstruct the Soviet Union has received significant blows because of the war in Ukraine. And indeed, many of the international organizations that Putin has championed dealing with the ex the former Soviet Union have really begun to unravel. Obviously, Ukraine is not a part of the former Soviet space, but Armenia has been very upset with Russia because of its inability to defend the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh to the point that Armenia has decided to sign the Rome statutes. And therefore, Putin, like in South Africa and other countries that are subject to the International Criminal Court, Putin would have to be arrested if he ever went to uh, Armenia. So I don't think there's a strong support and even hope that these former Soviet republics uh, want to join. I think that Putin has created a whole series of Potemkin villages in terms of his foreign relations, whether it be with the BRICS, whether it be with the Eurasian Economic Union, and so forth, that really haven't panned out for Putin. Yes, he can disrupt institutions, but he has not had the willing partners and the economic partners, most notably, that can get around sanctions and can really integrate Russia into the global economy. Russia is now more isolated than it has ever been since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Really, I think I was most intrigued with his meeting with, quite frankly, with Orban, because Orban is absolutely isolated within the EU, and the EU condemned Orban's meeting with Putin. The EU has not made any attempts to remove Hungary from the EU, but it is clearly upset that Orban is pursuing his own foreign policy in absolute contradiction to what the EU is trying to do. And there's also talk that Vladimir Putin sees the crisis in the Middle East with Israel and Hamas as an opportunity. What do you say about that? Well, Vladimir Putin, as a peacemaker, is really not on. And whereas he maybe thinks that he can play the peacemaker, clearly he can't play it in the Middle East, and he can play it in Ukraine and other countries as well. So although Putin talks about the role of Russia as a peacemaker and mediator, it is laughable that Russia can actually talk about peacemaking when it is committing a huge amount of criminal acts and atrocities in Ukraine. Do you also think that it's in some ways he's looking at this as some sort of advantage for him, what's happening in the Middle East, the distraction from what's happening in Ukraine? I think he believes that it will be a distraction, and it may be. But the idea that Putin can actually engage in peacemaking in the Middle East, um, I think, is just not on. William Pomeranz, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Russia's lower house of parliament voted to revoke ratification of the global nuclear test ban. Patricia Lewis, a research director for international security at Chatham House, says it could have a domino effect on other countries as well. We are entering into a new phase of untrammeled nuclear weapons um, environments, which could also lead to proliferation. And the more that the nuclear weapon states that already possess these weapons start to talk about them again, the more other countries are going to revise their view as to whether or not they should develop. 
There are widespread concerns that Russia could resume nuclear tests to try to discourage the West from offering military support to Ukraine. Lewis says it has the potential to set back diplomatic progress by decades. Undoubtedly lead to a stimulant for um, nuclear proliferation. It would undoubtedly lead many in the United States uh, to call for new nuclear weapons themselves and, and nuclear weapons tests. So we're ent- we would be reversing the clock on all the work that, that we have achieved. She says while it is concerning, it's not clear that we're looking at the immediate restart of nuclear testing because they're de-ratifying, but remaining a signatory, meaning they still abide by the terms of the treaty. That treaty, adopted in 1996, bans all nuclear explosions anywhere in the world, although it has never fully entered into force. A Russian-American journalist working for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, has been detained in Russia on charges of failing to register as a foreign agent. Alsu Kermasheva, an editor with the U.S. Congress-funded outlet, is the second U.S. journalist to be held by Russia in recent months. Evan Gershkovich, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, accused of spying, has been detained since March. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. U.S. President Joe Biden will deliver an evening address following his visit to Israel. Associated Press correspondent Jennifer King reports the president is also expected to talk about support for Ukraine. The White House has announced that the president will deliver remarks from the Oval Office this evening to discuss the U.S. response to the Hamas attacks against Israel, as well as Russia's war against Ukraine. On the flight back from Tel Aviv, Biden told reporters Israel and Egypt's president have agreed to allow 20 trucks carrying humanitarian aid to cross into the Gaza strip from the southern border at Rafah. If Hamas confiscates it or doesn't let it get through or just confiscates it, then it's going to end. Amid outrage over an explosion that killed hundreds at a hospital in Gaza City, the UN-supervised delivery would be the first crack in a siege that began after Hamas militants rampaged across communities in southern Israel on October 7th. Jennifer King, Washington. Russian shells destroyed half of Ukraine's energy distribution system last year, but extensive repairs and some lessons learned mean the country is better prepared this time winter is approaching, and Ukraine's cities are turning on the heat, adding a significant load to the country's energy distribution system, half of which was damaged after the past year's shelling by Russian forces. From Kyiv, Lija Bakaletz reports on how the country has rebuilt its power grid. This power substation is one of many across Ukraine. Wartime security measures, especially after the past year's bombings, means reporters are asked not to disclose its location or the surnames of the people who work here. Oleksandr is an employee of Ukrenergo, the national power company of Ukraine. Behind me is the transformer attacked by a Russian drone last year. The fire was extinguished after several days because of the type of the equipment, which smokes and burns for a long time. This substation was attacked several times last fall and winter, like many others across Ukraine. Officials say half the country's energy system was damaged by Russian bombs. And this is not a hole-in-the-fence type damage. We are talking about the engine rooms and power units demolished. Every one of Ukraine's large power plants, thermo and hydro, was damaged. 
була пошкоджена. That is why repairs to the energy facilities, which began last winter, are still ongoing. We had non-stop work all winter. We fixed something and a month later two rockets attacked again. Repairing the energy infrastructure is a complex and lengthy process. Energy experts say facilities often have to wait months for spare parts. On September 11, the first transformer arrived, which took nine months to produce. We need several dozen. Therefore, a certain amount of time is unfortunately absolutely physically necessary. Still, energy experts say everything that could be fixed was repaired. And officials are optimistic that the lessons they learned mean Ukraine will get through another winter in wartime. We have improved air defenses. We are much better prepared organizationally and more experienced. We already know how to deal with situations that no one in the world has ever encountered. Also, officials say new secret protections have been installed in the energy plants, raising hopes for fever and even shorter power outages, even in the heat of war. Lesia Bakalets, VOA News, Kyiv. As the war drags on, some severely injured Ukrainians who received medical help abroad are now returning home. Yana Stepanenko and her mother have resettled in Lviv after a year of treatment and rehabilitation in the U.S. Olmilyan Oshudalak has the story. For 12-year-old Yana Stepanenko, who lives in Lviv, Ukraine, today's school schedule is familiar. Algebra, geometry and world literature. A welcome change from the past year, which was filled with worry and upheaval, and then relief. Yana, who had lost both of her feet in a Russian missile strike, had gone to the US, where a clinic there gave her the ability to walk again. She initially held onto her wheelchair, then used the cane and eventually regained her balance and started walking without assistance on her own. Gradually, she learned. I was really nervous because I was lying down most of the last year. It was hard to even sit. One day I talked to Peter and he said I would be able to stand up and even walk on my own. The Peter Yana refers to is Peter Hirsch, who runs a prosthetic clinic in San Diego, California. Peter and his team also worked with Yana's mother, Natalia Stepanenko, who lost her left leg. Together, the two learned to walk again. When you've been in a wheelchair for more than three months and you finally stand up, you remember the moments when you used to walk on two legs, how easy it was. And here you are, like a little child, taking your first steps. It was very hard. The Stepanenko family had been living in the New York, Ukraine, when Russia invaded. On April 8, 2022, they were at the Kramatorsk train station, waiting for evacuation, when a Russian missile struck it, killing 52 adults and seven children. A picture of Yana taken by Spanish photographer Emilio Morenati became a defining image of the war. Dr. Dmitro carries me in his arms. This was just after he changed the dressing on my feet. During their treatment and rehabilitation in the U.S., the Stepanenkos lived in Encinitas, a suburb of San Diego. It was here that Yana learned to ride a bicycle once again. When Yana got on the bike for the first time, I was so proud of her. She didn't give up. She knew she could do it. She's very strong. Peter made me special running prosthesis in America. Now I walk and even run a little. After returning to Ukraine, 
Yana completed a symbolic 70-meter run in a charity half marathon in Lviv. Yana has become an ambassador for the Unbroken Rehabilitation Center and helps raise funds to buy medical equipment. Since the war began, local doctors have mastered pediatric prosthetic technology that was previously unavailable to them. And Yana is a vivid example that rehabilitation is possible. We OA News, Lviv, Ukraine. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.